Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me across the desk, her love letters were published, and then everybody started to juggle. It's Regan Levin. <laughs> well, I've always wanted to learn how to juggle. It's a skill I, I do not have, but always want. Yeah, you've inspired all the uh, readers of The New Yorker to start I mean, how to juggle themselves. I mean, that's the real goal, <laughs> is to inspire readers of The New Yorker, or be in The New Yorker, <laughs> frankly. Frankly. Yes. Um, this was quite the episode. Might be my favorite episode of the Ooh, whole season okay. so far. It's, I think, up there with some of the other ones. Um, I, I enjoyed three, it. Episode four, I think, is when the show maybe hits its... Oh, the first episode is also a banger, so... There's a lot happening in the first episode. There's a lot happening. And this episode, I think, like is working on many different levels. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Plot-wise, it moves a ton of important events forward. Right. Finally There's... ties up things planted. We get payoff for things planted in episode yeah. two. Yep, exactly. Um, while also doing some interesting things structurally mm-hmm. within the season for that reason, but within the episode yeah. itself, um, like re- the revelation of secrets and things that have just been alluded to is happening that I think on an emotional level, this mm-hmm. episode really works, or at least it really worked on me. Yeah, no, I agree. That, it, of course, would be The Young Pope, Episode 9, directed by Paolo Sorrentino, written by Paolo Sorrentino, Umberto Cantarella, and Pepe Fiore. We'd like to know this podcast was recorded during the WGA and SAG AFRA strikes, and without the labor of the writers and actors who are currently on strike, this show would not exist. Regan, what's our IMDb summary? While the Pope suffers another loss, Gutierrez struggles to gather evidence against Kurtwell. Okay. Kind of a subpar summary. There's a lot happening here. There's a lot happening. And I think the way for us to tackle this is that, you know, to what you just said about some of the seeds that were planted back in the early first half of the season kind Mm -hmm. of really um, coming to fruition here is that I think you helpfully want us to frame this episode through a crucial discussion from earlier in the season. Right. Calton Asetta asks us the question of or or says, what does it mean to carry the weight of God and what is the purpose of a priest? And I think hear the theme of the episode, at least what I was reading, is that we're questioning what does it actually mean to carry the weight of God in addition to how God's will is interpreted by those who receive it. And also seeing a lot of like the sacramental ways of how life is divided up by Catholics. Yeah. And I think that that helps us as well frame. I mean, as promised, this is a Gutierrez-centric mm-hmm. episode, even as there's a whole lot other else going on. Like, we literally have a true godly miracle depicted on screen, yet yes. that's, like, not the most important thing that's happening in this episode. Right. But I think one of the things that's notable to me about Gutierrez, and I suspect you are probably better at interpreting this than I am, is the way in which it's, like... This episode is trying to draw on a ton of tropes we have for kinds of stories generally or Mm -hmm. kinds of TV episodes more specifically. Yeah. In Gutierrez's narrative, while kind of recasting all of those in the um, aesthetic and tonal style of the young Pope. Yeah. So, like, what are some of the kind of narrative tropes or, like, conventional well, structures it's that we Gutier- have this episode? <laughs> Gutierrez is playing, like, a police detective now that he's in New York City. So we could call this Law and Order, the young Pope. <laughs> bum, bum, okay, anyways, I'm not going to sing on this podcast. So he is very much kind of playing a detective, trying to string together things. Um, he even has his wall of, like, Yep, his conspiracy wall. Yeah, yeah, his conspiracy wall. He is trying to track down all these different people who have been hurt by Kurtwell or have connections to him. Um, in addition to, we see Kurtwell's side of the story, which, um, you know, he seems to subject the idea that, you know, he hasn't done anything wrong in some ways. 
Um, and so it's also, I think, reimagining of like, what is the priest's purpose? Yeah. Right. We know that priests have a lot of different jobs. Some of them do minister to the masses. Some work as librarians, some work as teachers. I guess Gutierrez right now is operating as a police officer slash detective. And in doing so, I think another narrative that, that the episode is pulling on is that of like the quest narrative, Mm -hmm. right? Of course, like a quest narrative and a procedural or police procedural have their similarities already, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I think the way that a quest narrative is also like as the character who is questing seeks to find the thing, they also discover new things about themselves in the process. And Mm -hmm. like the real quest was the self-discovery made along the way Mm -hmm. um, sort of situation. And I think that's extremely true about Gutierrez. Like there's moments in this episode where he even like describes himself to Rose in this episode in like the most, as the most absolutely passive person possible. Which is interesting because his real job in the Vatican is to be the master of ceremonies of the Holy See. In theory, he should be someone very feeling very confident making active decisions to move things along as they need to be moved yeah but i think that that even heightens the contrast between his personality and the roles Mm. he perhaps is meant to play within the church and the way he doesn't necessarily fulfill them at least not in traditional sense right we literally have zero scenes of him doing any of the work of that office right right we have scenes of him like being in contemplation and having deep conversations with Lenny. Right. That's it. That's all we ever see him doing. And That's staring true. staring at paintings, like Although, which what I would want to do, right. like having visions of his mom. Right. Well, also, I'm wondering, too, I'm also going to throw this out, is that he's also someone extremely comfortable with a ritual. Mm-hmm. And that is, like, any Catholic anywhere could plop into any mass and kind of know what's happening. Right. And so maybe that's part of it. Maybe we should do a read of Gutierrez as like on the autism spectrum because he loves routine so much. I think that's like a, I think that's a priestly thing. Like I don't think maybe. we have other, other like reasons within the universe that's of the true. show to necessarily read him that way. True. Um, and if, and if anything, like I think the love of ritual is something that, is a moment or like a mechanism of bonding between him and Lenny because mm-hmm. Lenny, I mean, famously in the first episode, as we talked about, right. proclaim, pro- proclaims his love of um, ritual and rites and customs because yes. of the order they establish. Yeah, that's true. But a hierarchical one. Yeah. But I also think that he in here is doing, he's like, he's out of, out of his comfort zone. Yes. He's never been outside of it's the a travel mechanism. narrative, fish yeah. out of water. Also yeah. fish out of water narrative. Yeah. Like that sort of trope is happening, but it also gives him like, he's doing really serious work and one thing I read into this episode is that Bernardo Gutierrez is perhaps someone who was a victim of childhood sexual assault yeah. um, and that this felt very important to him to do it not only for the Pope um, but also for himself I think that's entirely plausible um, reading of this. And, like, I think there are some lines in the episode, like, I think of some of his conversation with Rose and a couple other places where even the dialogue or his, like, self-narration to others Mm -hmm. gives some hints in that direction. But I also think there's something about the dynamic for him in which... I fully agree that this is incredibly significant for him himself as a person, mm-hmm. right? To like get, have the goods and, you know, get rid of Kurtwell. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the quest against Kurtwell to find evidence about Kurtwell is also deepening like his trauma or deepening mm-hmm. his like mode of his alcoholism, right? Is deepening his lack of self care, like all of these things um, that show that while he has this intense like purpose 
purposeful uh, desire to do something about this, it's also like harming himself in the process, right? Or further kind of like re-traumatizing something in the process. It's another possible available reading in general mm-hmm. of the show. Yeah. And I think that that would be consistent with him having experienced some form um, of assault in his youth. Mm, okay. Yeah. And perhaps going back again to his mother who did not scorn wickedness. Wish she would have made a pop-up in this episode. That would have been great. Yeah. Um, but I, mean, I think one of the, the questions that you are helping us ask is, like, what is Gutierrez doing to help lift the weight of God? Well, I think you've brought, you've brought this up in our pre-episode dialogue, which is that he's actually ministering to others and doing the work that you would assume a priest would do. Or a good priest. Or, or yeah. yes, a good priest. Um, as he is, as we know, a fundamentally good man. Um, so he's, you know, ministering and comforting David, who's clearly distraught, not well, yeah. um, in the throes of something, mm-hmm. um, you know, comforting Rose through her illness, making sh- and trying to do the right thing by removing someone from a pow- position of power who should not be there. Yeah. Um, you know, and enacting the will of God as he understands it, which is to not harm others. Mm-hmm. Um And for someone who is, and this I think can fit in with the, like, if you're good at ministering, you may have this capacity in yourself, is that he, granted, he's been there for nine or ten months or whatever, but, like, he has such a close connection to Rose Mm -hmm. that he's able, whom he obviously had never met, and who is the manager of the hotel where he's been staying. Right. um, That he forms a, like, relationship with... um, or David comes to trust him, you know, over time, like watching him, observing him, but mm-hmm. then like conversationally, you know, it's within the span of a day, right? Yeah. That, that David like comes fully out in his revelation that Corwell is his father, mm-hmm. that uh, he and Freddie clearly like have had a number of conversations about what Kurtwell has or wants to do to Freddie. That we have Pete, who good to, whose house Gutierrez visits, right? And mm-hmm. clearly like he and Pete have had some, built some kind of rapport or relationship, right? So he's doing a lot of the relationship building work mm-hmm. with people who had been strangers and all of whom are strangers, like facing down past trauma and, or like mm-hmm. present, um, like disability or frailty or mm-hmm. illness or mm-hmm. whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. Yeah. So yeah, I think he's, he's doing this cause he's also taking in a lot. He's doing some work of Tommaso, um, the ultra, the confessor, mm-hmm. right. He's taking people's confessions and their thoughts. Um, but also is managing to do this in a way that again, shows like his skill at being such a fundamentally good person. Um, and acting in a way that I want a priest to act of like being someone who's there in times of distress and trauma, which clearly all people in this episode are going through. And I think that one of the key indicators of that is that there's a way in which all of those characters that we just named are able to express something about their full humanity to mm-hmm. Gutierrez, regardless of how short or how long they've actually been in communication with him, mm-hmm. right? All of those characters have. Yeah. And so even as Gutierrez, like, is drinking himself to death or to something, right, in that hotel room, so much so that, like, Lenny is shook at when he takes a look around on the right. people Skype call. Um <laughs> That he still has that capacity and capability. Yeah. I think there's a slight dark edge to that. Yes. Right? Like, and this is where 
there's because Gutierrez has been cloistered in like a only semi colloquial semi like mm-hmm. priestly sense. Right. Um, he lacks like a certain level of people skills or like lacks like a certain emotional IQ or something mm-hmm. at the same time that he has this ability to build relationships with people. Like mm-hmm. he presses Pete too hard, mm-hmm. right? His pl- plan with Freddie, which ends up working, um, is convincing Freddie to entrap Kurtwell, right. right? And to like have sex with Kurtwell. Mm-hmm. In order to catch Kurtwell, right? So, like, there is this kind of darker edge that's tinged, um, right, that's right. tinged in these relationships that he's well, making. And I think Gutierrez is someone who knows kind of the dark and light of the universe. Mm. I mean, yeah, yeah, he experiences that himself, right? Yeah, Witness his alcohol. So he, know, yeah, he knows this. Um, you know, his alcohol probably hidden away in his stuffed animals. No, it's just out in the open. No oh, stuff right, animals to hide them between. It's just scattered everywhere. True. And, like, Freddy knows his order, right? Yeah, so I think this is something where we also see how Gutierrez functions with all of his trauma. Like, I feel strongly that he was probably someone who experienced this in his youth. Um, and how he copes with this is also through alcohol and, um, you yeah. know, buying stuffed critters, apparently. Um, and he... I think is dealing with this as best he understands how through what is permissible by Catholicism, Mm. which is not a religion that tells you to stop drinking or religion that like necessarily is in all its forms or most of its forms big on human to human bonding and relationships that too. Right. Like it would rather make those secondary to rights, customs, orders, hierarchy, so on and procedure, so on and so forth. Yeah. Which is what, presumably Kurtwell has used to maintain his power mm-hmm. over all these years, yeah. right? Is, ma- is maneuvering within and among and like manipulating the hierarchies and customs and orders and rights. Yeah. What did you think of David as a character? Um, I have some thoughts and feelings about David that I will discuss more in class, I think. But um, David, I think is interesting in that he is kind of a representation of like the Catholic shame and guilt. Mm hmm. Right. He is Catholic shame and guilt personified to the point of where he, you know, wears a wig so he can't be recognized. Um, And yet a wig that like hyper visibilizes him in public. Yeah. Yeah. So he's also being doing that in a way that I think is very interesting in a way that. So, for example, we see Gutierrez wearing the very casual um Garb that priests tend to wear in the States. Yeah, like day-to-day life. Right, the day-to-day, like, collar with the tabs or whatever, which is meant to not be so ostentatious as the things they normally wear in the Vatican, Mm -hmm. but it is something that sticks out and you can identify, oh, that's a priest immediately, right? David's kind of doing the same thing. Oh, I like this reading. Right, because he's wearing something that will try to disguise him. They can't tell it's David right away. But it also is that wig that is such a bright yellow. But he's doing the same thing because he is wearing a wig that disguises his face, that takes away and distracts from what he looks like. Mm -hmm. But also, it's such a bright yellow that you can identify it's a wig immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, because it's not very well kempt. But... um, so he's kind of doing the same thing of kind of the hiding in plain sight that Gutierrez is doing. Right. Um, and that, like, you know, from what we know from journalism about abuse in the Catholic Church, like, 
that probably captures like all the experiences of like narratives again that we've seen mm-hmm. in the media. So there's filters and like, it's been a while since I like read narratives about this, but mm-hmm. like, I think one of the senses that has stuck with me from reading coverage of a lot of the journalism around that is like that precise dynamic of the like hiding in plain sight was indeed the experience of a lot of survivors mm-hmm. of abuse in the church. I mean, I think abuse, abuse anywhere. generally, yeah. abuse generally is a lot of hiding in plain sight. Yeah. yeah. I think, I don't know. The thing with David that sticks out to me is that he's so, profoundly traumatized by something that he doesn't really label yeah. right and he's not well yeah um, the point is the horror that's the line he ultimately yes. gives to Gutierrez yeah. as being more important than the fact that Carwell is his estranged dad yeah um, and how that is also like such a traumatic thing because you also we don't know if Kurtwell was consensual at all with David's mother. We don't know. That's entirely possible. But uh, the way David behaves about it is that it was not. And the way Kerwell behaves generally, including like the story he tells about this man, Jack Whistler, like who visits his mother when they're nomads, quote unquote. Yeah. So David, I also thought about a lot as being, um, kind of like John the Baptist in Mm. some ways, Mm -hmm. a fundamentally good character in the Bible, right? Jesus's cousin, um, who, is often portrayed as kind of a madman and kind of like, you know, he's a little, he's a little, he's different. Absolutely. Right. That's a good, that's a good way of talking about John the Baptist. He's different. Um, the river. Yep. Um, he's different and he is kind of, I think portrayed in the similar way of like, he's different, but he's ultimately telling the truth and doing good things. Yeah. And I think one of the, Ways that there's there's a mirroring, obviously, and you pointed out some of the ways, like some of the deeper ways between him and Gutierrez. But like on a very simple level, they're both like questing for some kind of relationality to other humans mm-hmm. on an emotional level that they usually do not let themselves access with themselves, much less with others. Right? right. Like witness the conversation as they watch the figure skater. Right. Yeah. Where for most of it, it's. Uh, Gutierrez and David looking straight ahead, mm-hmm. right? Like on opposite sides of an aisle and David's like four rows of bleachers above him, right? Yeah. So like there's not even the facial contact. And it ends with like him waiting outside Gutierrez's hotel room to like take his wig off and say to Gutierrez out loud, you know, here is a good man. I can trust this man, mm-hmm. right? And then like David introduces himself to Gutierrez as someone who like is losing his relationship with his like bio family Mm -hmm. as a result of the aftermath of the traumas that have been suffered by him and or his family Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and or his mother. Like, and then here he is doing that in like Gutierrez's hotel room. It's like a really remarkable, I mean, we were talking before the show, like really incredible character for 10 minutes of an episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, very fond of David. I feel like he is someone who is trying to figure out his place and all of this stuff going on. Yeah. And then what about Kurtwell himself? Creep. Extremely. <laughs> but also I feel that he seems to represent the perpetuity of trauma. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, he's clearly traumatized by, like, this nomad life, right? Um, absent father. Absent father. In which they, like, lampshade by talking about fathers and whose father, like, yes. and everything with the deacon or whoever is, like, his attendant. Right. Um, he is someone who I think is unable to make productive relationships with anybody. I kind of wonder if that guy, Jack, also maybe molested him as a child. I feel like that's heavily implied. Um, and so... 
perpetuating the cycle of abuse and traumatizing um, others. But in a way, again, he's not well. Um, He's hinted at having Parkinson's, but also I think as someone who um, probably sought out stability by becoming a priest, um, again, a vocation that has happened throughout history of, um, okay, I'll fake it my way through seminary school and be pretty well taken care of. So I think that he is portrayed as like a big bad in some ways and has been the whole time. But he also is clearly struggling with a lot of other things. Like I read, I did like a little bit of poking around on different people's interpretations of this episode. Um, And there was one episode, I think in Vulture, I want to say, where they were like, Kerwell is probably being falsely accused of this because he seems to only be interested in men over the age. Like he is clearly interested in Freddie, who's at least 18 to sell alcohol in the state of New York. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the major domo is also he has like a like lingering touches with who's also clearly an adult. Um, But at the same time, like we also have Pete, right, who I think it's heavily implied that Pete was much younger when the abuse that he experienced happened. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that is something that I think is um, not to be tossed out. But they were like, well, it seems they were that was their interpretation, which I strongly disagreed with. I think it's clear that he will prey upon anyone he views as weak or lesser. Yeah. Yeah. That like it's about the power and violence he can exercise. Yeah. Rather than like the gender of the person against whom it's exercised. Agreed. Um, or even their age. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that means it's someone who's younger than you and yeah. smaller than you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he also is someone who clearly is power hungry in a yeah. way that similarly to Lenny, but also like is completely entrapped by his own desires. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Lenny is the ultimate denier of pleasure. Right. His single cherry Coke Zero in the morning. <laughs> right. Although he does love smoking, I mean, but he knows that smoking the, yeah, is a death Yeah, the cigs wish. are his vice. Yeah. Yes. Um, Kurtwell, I think, clearly will give in to any desire he has. Right. And that, I think, runs the gamut and connects from, like, desire to violently exert his will sexually over others and also his desire for power, his will to power. And those two things are tied together, like, by him very much like enjoying and like Gutierrez recognizes this and is like you don't have a car anymore like we're riding the train to the Mm -hmm. airport the desires all run in the same direction are linked together and are just like different ways of exercising slash seeking power for him yeah um but I want to pick up on something else you said and that is like clearly the power hungriness is like somewhat tied to Lenny even if it's different than Lenny What's your read of how we should understand Kurtwell as a character in relation to Lenny? Like, is he a foil to Lenny Mm. to some extent? To what extent is he a counterpart? To what extent is he, like, older Lenny? To what extent is he an alternative to Lenny? Like, how would you frame those two characters? Because, like, that's a question that this episode asks us. Right. When... Kurtwell, like, rides up to the bar and, like, accosts Gutierrez. It's a question that Kurtwell directly kind of poses to Lenny when they have a phone call. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, it's something that the show is asking us to consider. So I'm wondering how you consider it, Ed. Um, I feel like Kurtwell is Lenny's darkest reflection. Okay. Um, I think Kurtwell, you know, clearly, like... 
I think Lenny could have become Kurtwell had he stayed with his parents because his parents would have put him in dangerous and risky situations that were not appropriate for children. Um, But and they ultimately made the better decision, which was to have him be raised in the orphanage. And he I think is clearly someone who understands fundamental rights and wrongs, I would say. Maybe not fundamental, but like he clearly is like not into necessarily physically abusing others or exerting his will in ways yeah. that will physically or will traumatize them. Yes. Right? And he also has learned to do this through the losses he's experienced. Mm-hmm. Right? We have mm-hmm. not seen him ab- abuse a servant since... Sister BJ. Sister BJ's death. Yeah. And in fact... in his Since Andrew's death, really. Yeah. And in fact, since like... In a moment of sadness in this episode, he calls in all of the staff, like yes. who he's not particularly nice to, even if he's right. not like abusing directly. But he's mm-hmm. like has caused some emotional harm to basically everybody in that room, yeah. and tells them that he loves them. Yes, yeah. right. We this is Lenny. Lenny, if he had not undergone loss and a crisis of faith and sought out and been surrounded by people who are trying, like we see that I think he now know so much about Voyello who cares so deeply for Girolamo that he is also seeing that there is validity in caring for others. Showing It's showing Lenny's growth in the past few episodes versus like he could have become Kurtwell mm. had he not been exposed to those who bring him up. Yeah. So that would be what I would say. Um, That's a generous reading of Lenny. I think it is. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying Lenny's perfect. He's not. No, I, I know. I recognize that. I mean, some but, ways he's, but he's seen, he's shown a lot of growth in the past three episodes, really. That's interesting. I don't know if I believe that at all. No? I, <laughs> no. Think, I think we're seeing it. I think we're seeing it. Um, because he's now that he's lost, like, his one true friend, he's really kind of... And who's... And lost his dad, dad in this episode. Yeah. His god dad. Yeah. Right. So he's he's lost a lot. And yeah. so now I think he's kind of seeing, like, he's also repenting or trying to be better than what he was before. Which I guess does, to some extent, get literalized a couple of times in this episode, as we'll yeah. get to. But I think in regards to Kurtwell, I don't know. I think Lenny is just as power-hungry as Kurtwell. Mm-hmm. I agree. his aims and methods are quite different. Yeah, I think that's right? a fair take. I think that that's probably one way to one the, way to put it. A very accurate take. And that Kurtwell is all is and he even frames this is all charisma and uses that for bad, for evil, yes. right? For literally for mm-hmm, evil. Mm-hmm. And Lenny has a lot of charisma on which he can draw and manipulatively refuses to use that to the public, but then uses that charisma in private right, mm-hmm. towards the achievement of his ends. Yes. I think that's a way to put it. Yeah. Um, you know, and Gutierrez and I, and, and, but I think there's something like Kurtwell says, Lenny envies my charisma and Gutierrez just like absolutely categorically rejects that notion. And Gutierrez is right mm-hmm. in there. I don't oh, think, yeah. I don't think Lenny, Lenny is envious of Kurtwell in the slightest. No, not at all. I think, I think, Lenny is clearly pretty horrified at what at what Kurtwell's done, and he's taken some deliberate measures to make sure some justice is made. I think again, that's maybe even too generous to Lenny. Like Gutierrez, I guess in the end, like turned out to be the right person to send, maybe, but mm-hmm. like shouldn't he have sent somebody who knew what they were doing? I 
see, this is what I think. On just a pure, like, instrumental reason basis. Right. Like, somebody who could have wrapped this up in not ten months, but in four months. And, or we, or we think that, like, it's Gutierrez's carrying the weight of God, his ministering, his relationship building. Right. His experience of whatever trauma he's experienced well, that leads him to be able to, like, quote-unquote, crack the case to go back right. to the procedural. But, like, let's be real, is that Lenny, we know one of Lenny's things that he does to everyone is that he knows how to read people and can get figure out what makes them tick very easily. Especially Part of, if Tommaso helps. Right, especially because of his connection with Tommaso. And so it's kind of the, the two, is that he knows how to, how to read the room. He also has someone giving him the spark notes. <laughs> <laughs> so he knows this and I think he picked Gutierrez because he knows Gutierrez is upset about what is going on here. He also is trying to I'm not saying he's doing it because he's horrified and like the way that you and I would be horrified by this sort of scandal. Yeah. He's trying to save the rep of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Like that's what he's doing. And that's okay. Because he's in that position to do so. Does he care about the reputation of the Catholic Church? Oh, I think he very much so. Because if the Catholic Church has no reputation, then he has no power. I think he cares about the reputation of the Catholic Church only if it can be bent to his vision of presence is absence. Mm. Rigidity is the mechanism through which... But if the pyramid falls, he's at the top. Correct. So he has to make sure that things are going well in other ways. Like, yeah. I think he is horrified that someone is trying to violate their bonds as a priest. I, th- I think I would frame, like, his choice of Gutierrez slightly differently in that he rejects, in almost all instances, I think, being dependent or interdependent or reliant on or trusting others. Hmm. And the only people who are led into that circle are Spencer, to some extent, Sister Mary... Almost to a full extent. Mm-hmm. Andrew, who has died. Spencer yep. has died as well. Right. Andrew has died, both after uh, uh, Gutierrez was sent and then Gutierrez, right? Like, mm. so he was only going to choose someone from that to do this because, yeah. regardless of whatever, I think he does have like broader, wider concerns. But I think, like, his fundamental understanding of, of himself as the wounded, abandoned orphan means that, like, Every action he takes, including his choice of Gutierrez, was an attempt to, like, salve that wound. Hmm. I think it's how I interpret it. Hmm. Interesting. It's an interesting take. I don't know if I have a follow-up to that. Yeah. Well, there's more characters to talk about with like, in true. relation to Gutierrez. So maybe we should go to Ruse next. Yes. Sure. What a... I'll start here. That, like... The scene where they don't say goodbye, but are almost saying goodbye, mm-hmm. where Rose like sticks the fan between them so they don't kiss, but they're basically kissing, and she <laughs> says, "Share the air." Yes, is just a truly beautiful scene. It is, I think, right? yeah. <laughs> but what else did you think of Rose as a character? Um, I thought she was really interesting. I'll talk more about Rose in the glass section because I have. Uh, there was some reads on this episode that I had that. Um, you did not. Um, but Rose, I think, is just an interesting portrayal of, like, someone who is so surrounded by fear. And I think this was a very heavy-handed choice by the yes. <laughs> by the writers to show, like, this Gutierrez, this is what could happen to you if you do not, you know, get mm-hmm. out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Um, is that you could literally be... <laughs> airlifted and bricked out to go get my life-saving surgery. Um, 
but she is like one of the the only American woman I think we've encountered. Um, she shows I think some stereotypes of Americans that um, would happen. Um, but also someone who really I think is trying to do the best she can with what she has. Yeah. Um, you know, she's running this hotel from her bed, presumably. Uh-huh. Pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like the hotel is always portrayed as being in squalor, but like every other I don't think it's that bad of a hotel. I think just um I think just Gutierrez's room is gross because he's I been agree. there too long. I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise seems fine. Um and so she's trying. Um and she, I think. I also want to know where the hotel is located. That's a separate issue that, okay. that I don't, you know, I don't think the show gives us that, but I would like to know. Mm, my guess is going to be Queens because we know. Oh, it's definitely in Queens. That I okay. know for sure. I'm like wondering. I think it's like, I don't even know. You wouldn't even yeah. know? I don't even know. Um, Queens is, and yeah. I mean, I know my Manhattan and Brooklyn neighborhoods much better than I know any other neighborhood. Fair. Like a true I, I asshole. Was, <laughs> the only neighborhood in Queens I'm fully aware of is Jamaica. Yeah. And that's about it. Yeah, Jackson Heights. Yeah, there you uh, go. You got your Long Island City. Those are the places. Jackson Heights, Long Island City, probably the places I've been to the most. Okay. But Sunny anyway. side with side. Okay. Um, or Forest Hills also is yeah, in yeah, Queens. Hills. I have Spider-Man famously from Forest Hills, Queens. <laughs> I did not know that. No, now you know. So, um, yeah, I think she is meant to be there to make sure that Gutierrez feels comfortable getting out of his comfort zone. But he also brings her so much comfort because you, I'm under the impression that no one has visited her in a long time. Yeah. And he visits her quite frequently throughout yeah. this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably has visited her at least once a day, if not once right. a week, because I for think, his whole duration. Yeah, because I think Gutierrez like clearly craves the very small people he can open up to or have some yeah. sort of relationship to. And yes. Like that was Lenny, mm-hmm. right, in the Vatican. And so he needed somebody. And I think actually for some of the reasons you identified, like he and Rose are <laughs> like meant to be in, as friends in some mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. who can share romantic fan guess um, <laughs> at the same time. I mean, it's, that's the final push that Gutierrez needs to close the deal, right? It's literally cut from Rose starting to be lifted out mm-hmm. of her room, asks to go back, like cut to Gutierrez's final confrontation with Kurtwell. Mm-hmm. Right. And like that, or uh, like the key confrontation with um, Kurtwell, like that's, that's it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, mm-hmm. um, I think tells us a lot about how these two are foils to one another yeah. as much as they yes, share. Definitely. What did you think of the way that the show depicted Rose's fatness? I was okay with it. Um, You know, she's depicted as someone who I think has a lot of health problems. And that's like the one way fat people can get away with being fat. Like you can be a very healthy fat person um, and get a lot of shit thrown on you. But society is kinder to those. Like she expresses having vertigo and a few other things. We know that the surgery is supposed to save her life. I don't think the surgery is for the vertigo. It's for something else. Yeah. And she says it's 40 40, 60, 40. I forget which side yeah. that like she might die in the surgery and what right. is the like solves the issue yeah. or addresses the issue. Um, so she, I was okay with it because she's also shown to be like kind and, and savvy in a way that I thought was very interesting. Um, I didn't, I mean, I will say it's a beautiful moment with the, the fan kiss, but also like that was the part that icked me the most, mm-hmm. which is sometimes I think 
fat women in particular yeah. are portrayed as being lustful and that's gross. Yeah. Um, which that gave me a little bit of the ick, but not as bad as like other pieces of media. Yeah. So that I think is my, my sense on it. I mean, um, as someone who would identify as a small fat, <laughs> actual term they use frequently on tic- on the TikTok. Okay. Um, you know, I think that's a way of, of operating. If you are bedridden, that's hard, right? But it also requires a lot of resilience out of people um, to be bedridden. That's actually a lot of work yeah. to make sure that you're not getting bed sores or you're, um, you know, you have all of your circulation going. Um, but I'm under the impression that she probably hasn't been bedridden for a super duper long time. Um because to run a hotel, you have to be up and about and doing things, but, you know, is, is having, you know, some intense health issues. Yeah. I mean, I think the two contrasts and like you and I both hit on this independently of one another, like it's not Brendan Fraser in the whale. Nope. And that's the, you know, positive light on the way the show depicts Rose and her fatness. But I think then the like questionable, and this is like the ick that I felt was there's a certain, and again, this is a very Catholic thing, like the depiction of moral or emotional purity through suffering Mm -hmm. that the show, I think obviously most focuses on with Giorlamo. I think that bleeds over some to Rose as well. Like there's something Mm -hmm. about her fatness that like is a pity, like piteousness and, but also purity Mm -hmm. even with her own problems. Like she is a complex character and I, I, I think it's, an accomplishment of the show that in three minutes of screen time, she's a complex character, but I still think there's some of that like purity that she is there. Again, the, is the foil to Gutierrez. Like she is the thing that Gutierrez has to like overcome in himself mm-hmm. to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, witness like the line read that Gutierrez gives to her. Isn't it nice to live silent and flat on your back? And that's what Gutierrez says to Rose. Mm-hmm. Rose denies that and says yeah. that's not the case. That's, I think, what, like, the saddest line of dialogue in the entire Young Pope, I just mm. like to point out. Yeah. Um, that that's how Gutierrez feels. Yeah. Or at least it's what Gutierrez feels like saying to try to comfort Rose. Mm-hmm. So Rose denies that, mm-hmm. right? So challenges Gutierrez. Mm-hmm. But then Gutierrez is the one who proverbially, like, gets up off of his back and goes and does the thing in the world. Yeah. And Rose is the one who asks to be returned to her room mm-hmm. mid being airlifted. So there's, there's something about all of that that, like, is drawing on some of the same ickiness that I sometimes feel about the way the show depicts Girolamo. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, I can take that run. Yeah. And then we've got Freddie. Yes, Freddie. I'm so fond of Freddie because he's like kind of charming and fun and kind of you know gets flirty, flirty and, yeah. like an interesting look at someone. He's clearly like a pan king, I think, and has developed and has gotten Gutierrez out of his shell a bit. Yes, they've clearly established a relationship yeah. of some kind. But also, like, shows very quickly, like, m- questionable morality of, like, yeah, I'll help entrap this guy. That's fine. No, but he rejects oh, the trapping oh, yes. guy, but then eventually does. Yes. Yeah. Um. So what did Gutierrez offer him for the entrapment? I don't know. Yeah, so shows just, like, kind of the, I don't know. I mean, could have been someone who maybe was a young, maybe he were, I don't know. Maybe he's a, he doesn't seem to scorn wickedness. So perhaps he reminds Gutierrez of his mother. Mm. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I think that 
Freddy. I Freddy's like very open flirting with Gutierrez is mm-hmm. I think like a very effective touch in the show right. to convey something both about um, Freddy and about Gutierrez. Although like I don't think it says anything clearly in any direction about Gutierrez's sexuality mm-hmm. um, myself, but like. I really love that scene, again, for the way it shows the, like, the rapport that they have developed between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And it's not like Gutierrez is, like, pissed or upset mm-hmm. that Freddy is flirting with them. Right. He's just neutral about it. Yeah. And it's like, this is just how we are. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think the one question about Freddy that I have is, so there is the scene that, like, is either happens in between or, like, is the prelude to um, Kurtwell sucking his dick. Mm-hmm. Where like he can he and Kurt like have a confrontation and disagreement when Kurtwell walks into the liquor store mm-hmm. and like that confrontation is I guess supposed to be our one depiction of how he goes from rejecting this like let's entrap Kurtwell plot to carrying out the let's entrap Kurtwell plot mm-hmm. and, like just on a pure like storytelling level I'm not a hundred percent sure that right. we've gotten that like how yeah. or why that shift happened yeah. But maybe the show doesn't need to do that because, like, it's, it's you know, Freddy's a good character, but this show's not that interested in Freddy. It's interested right. in Gutierrez. Yes. Yeah. So Freddy, I thought, was quite interesting. But I, as you, as, as listeners will know, I've, <laughs> I've been reading Gutierrez as a very closeted um, queer the entire time. Freddy is, like, a little bit of an in of, like, he could have been Freddy had he not chosen the priesthood in some ways because he's just uncomfortable with chaos. Yeah. Um, so I, that's also, and if you had tennis skills or some, tennis right. Skill. Some kind of tennis skill. Yeah. Um, Although I think that if Freddie were like not being watched over in the creepiest fucking way possible by Kurtwell, yeah. that like maybe his serve is, is a little bit better. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Okay. Now that's a lot on this Gutierrez, um, situation. Yes. And yet, there's a lot more that happens in this episode, so I think it'd be the way for us to get into that, Regan, is, like, mm-hmm. I, I want to know what you think about why in this episode where clearly the center is Gutierrez vis-a-vis Kurtwell, but also Gutierrez and himself, Gutierrez mm-hmm. and Lenny, Gutierrez and these other characters, why in the Gutierrez investigates Kurtwell episode, it starts with this debate that Lenny and Spencer have about abortion. Mm-hmm. And midway through Gutierrez's story, we get Lenny, um, we get Lenny's miracle that he performed in his youth okay. as told to Spencer. Like, why do you think Paul Sorrentino and the writers made that particular decision to put these things together? Because we see like the, basically at this point, we see the three most Catholic things you could do. Okay. So one thing I might point out as you've brought in is that Gutierrez is using ministering to be successful in this case. Um, he's carrying the weight of God because he's clearly weighed down by like, I have been assigned to do this by the Holy Father. Like, let's get it done. Right. That's, that's one thing. But I also think like one, when we think of folks who are anti-abortion, Catholics come to mind pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, they are the people who organize the March for Life in D.C. every year, every March. Um, Aquinas College frequently sends a large delegation. Yeah, gross. I know. There's also a pro-life club at Aquinas College. I'm not surprised to hear that. Um, yes, my roommate was a member of it. Um, the whole time. The things I could tell you, John. <laughs> Off air. Off air. For the Patreon. <laughs> um, right. So this is something where that's like, it's a hot button issue in Catholicism. Um, and we also see also like two very different sides of priesthood in this episode. Where we see Gutierrez is doing the literal ministering. 
now we see the academic side of being. It's the mm. most theological this show gets is to talk about abortion. Yes, the, like there's a lot of surface level theology throughout the show about like particularly like the theodicy question yes. or like the does God exist question. Yeah. But there's not a lot of deeper theological debates, and yet this. We have this long cold open between the two of yes. them where they are getting into, if not deep, then like a medium level theological yeah. debate. Spencer is much deeper than Lenny, of course. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, because we also see, you know, this is, I, it, I think it's clear to me that Spencer at one point probably was working in a Catholic school because he does so much mentoring and teaching. Um, that's my read. That's also, my head canon. We also have, so two things. We also have the fact that, um, we know that Spencer is understood by like Voyello and Caltanissetta mm-hmm. as a part of the conservative wing of the church. Yes. And here he is offering a less harshly anti-abortion yes, view. Right. So there's that. Then I totally agree with you on the, like he worked in a Catholic school or had some kind of teaching background uh, Yeah, because of the way, particularly the opening of the scene is shot where Lenny is like sitting on the steps mm-hmm. leading up to like the papal uh, platform or whatever mm-hmm. in the chapel and there's a certain like boyishness childhood like elementary school i.e. like when money was orphaned uh, Mm -hmm. vibe that I think that shot has Mm -hmm. with regards to like the stately Spencer who is I think in a wheelchair at this Mm -hmm. point Mm -hmm. um, because of his health uh, challenges and his sickness or whatever Um, so like I think there's the teacher student thing is very clear between the two of them so I would say as someone who has um, had to make choices about abortion in the past um, this is a shockingly nuanced take on abortion Mm -hmm. um these are things that i think we all think about um there's a lot of power dynamics and i think that it's also giving a lot of like very traditional religious reads on text right we see kind of there's some lectio divina going on here some pardes going on here lectio divina is definitely more christian pardes is traditionally um you know a jewish choice of of how to interpret things of like we both have answers let's ask each other questions sort of thing so really also i would be Eject. I would be excommunicated from political theory profession if I didn't also call out the Socratic method. Yes, Socratic method for sure. Asking questions to learn. Um, you know, also a, a strong pedagogical choice that <laughs> I use in English um, in the teaching of writing. Um, you know, there's many things that the church has influenced our educational system. Um, Absolutely. Even down to how classrooms are set up. Socrates was there first. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, we all have lecterns in our classrooms, <laughs> and do. those are kind of like the lectern that, yeah. you know, a priest oh, speaks from. Oh, a thousand percent. Um, my church growing up before a renovation had a very cool one that had like a shell, like a seashell mm. over um, the little podium. I was pretty pissed when they took that down. I, I would have been too. Um, they did keep a lot of cabbage roses, but they did take that one down, and I was upset about it. Do you think we should add seashells to the lecterns in like... Guilt Auditorium and the uh, Cardinal yeah. Lounge and okay, um, yes. I mean, I, I again, I agree with you. We're, we're also not only are we capitalizing that we're capitalizing on you know the success of the Little Mermaid this summer, <laughs> uh, which is why I liked it growing up because it reminded me of the clamshell Ariel is supposed to pop out. <laughs> <laughs> but 
it's a very interesting dynamic because it's also kind of setting us up for the first sacrament that any Catholic completes, which is baptism. You have to be born in order to be baptized. And that's part of why Catholics are opposed to abortion, one, because of the sanctity of life, but also because that's an unbaptized soul that is condemned to hell basically, um, in the Catholic view. But it's a shockingly nuanced point. And I think a lot of um, a scholar that I had a class with in graduate school who studied the rhetoric and laws Mm -hmm. around abortion, um, it's wild to me that, like, Spencer is pointing out, like, no one did anything until the quickening. Um, I don't know. It was kind of nuts. So a really interesting point. Um, You asked the question, though, if I thought this was a dream. Yeah, I have other thoughts on the actual debate, but, like, let's go to this. Like, okay. straightforwardly, this is an actual argument that they have yes. in real life. I think that it is. I don't think that's 100% confirmed. And I think mm. there's an interpretation in which it is Lenny's dream mm. in the sense that, like, he often is. I mean, I don't actually think this is the case. I just want to say that this is plausible. Okay. Because, like, A, there's no confirmation from anywhere else in the storytelling that this conversation definitely happened. And the next time we see Spencer, he's just totally bedridden, right? So just right. to say that, like, on a very simple plot level, like, okay. that's possible. Then, like, on a – what does Lenny dream about? He dreams about his parents. He dreams about himself as a child. And here we have, like, a bringing in from his waking life of the arguments that he has had with Spencer, which we know took place in reality mm-hmm. in the shows that up to this point, right? And kind of – brought into a broader scale like we're literally in the Sistine fucking chapel here having this argument Mm -hmm. with no one else around Mm -hmm. so there's a way in which like the vastness emptiness parent dynamics lack of uh, self-certainty orphan understanding of self as an orphan that is often worked out in Lenny's dream space that I think is also at play here so again I just want to say it could be a dream okay that's fair. But it probably is a real conversation mm-hmm. between the two of them. Do you have more thoughts? So you have more thoughts about the argument. Go ahead. I do. I mean, just in the in the sense that, like, we have Lenny offering, Lenny recognizing to Spencer that there are more nuanced debates through people like Alphonsus, who we're actually going to get to in Aquinas, who we always get to um, in this podcast. But, like, Lenny's not interested in any of that. Right. Right? Lenny... I think his mode, his absolute mode of not doing any of the interpretive work, but like insisting on an absolute dogma. Mm. And then like, once he has that hammer, everything else is a nail. And like, he doesn't want to do any of the debates. He's like, here's a couple Exodus lines that like we can and have interpreted as being anti-abortion. And like for him, that's the end of the story. He's not interested in how evangelical Protestant of him. A billion thousand percent what I was thinking while watching um, this episode, but like, it is a certain rejection of the, like, somewhat more complicated or nuanced theology that yeah. Spencer knows, that Lenny also knows, but is just purely uninterested in, because mm-hmm. he would rather just subsume it under the dogma, right? Yeah. And, like, Spencer calls him out for, like, essentially having to commit himself to papal infallibility. Fallibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lenny says that he is sick of distinctions and... Um, Lenny says, well, we're essentially debating, like, orgasms and psychoanalysis as well. Spencer had a great line there of, yes. like, psychoanalysis being the one place where you don't have to do a lot of work and get a lot of money that the church lets slip through its hands, which is a great <laughs> line. And then we have, like, Lenny's, oh, isn't the woman always, you know, innocent or whatever it is. Um, in life, everyone is guilty except for the woman, and Lenny applies that broadly to life. Right. So just, like, the... 
you know, in an episode where, like, as I'm sure we'll get into, like, I think there's a lot of emotional identification one can have with Lenny. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of the deeper, laying bare on a deeper level of some of his, like, fatal flaws is very much on display in this opening scene. And also, it's just, like, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful scene, like, Mm -hmm. being in the Sistine Chapel, the way that it's shot, the use of the cavernous space with just the two of them. Mm -hmm. All of that, I thought, was just incredibly effective. I agree. I agree. So we've got that. Okay. And then <laughs> somehow we are almost an hour into this episode. Right. And, and now like, we're talking about Lenny's miracle. Like Lenny literally, I think, performed a miracle and saved a dying I mean, woman through prayer. Right? Like in the universe of the show, that, that, that happens. Yes? Yes. Well, this is not the first time we've seen him allegedly perform a miracle. I know. Um, right? He killed Sister Antonia. Talking about, like, our various sacraments yeah. and stages. Like, killed Sister Antonia. Right. Uh, and impregnated Esther. Yes. Immaculately conceived Esther. Right. Um, so, like, one, he's doing the anointing of the sick here. Um, you know, so the sacraments of healing. Um, so it's, again, back to the seven yeah. sacraments that you make. So not only are we talking about pre-baptism things, but he's doing the thing of preserving life um, with the healing of the sick. Um, and then, you know, this whole show is about holy orders, right? Yes. Um, matrimony, questionable, if they will ever involve it. Um, but they're doing that, right? Um so there's all this debate about like Lenny being married to God. Yes, this right? is true. Which comes up in this episode. That even. is a good point. Thank you. So he's performing this miracle. Um, you know, he's in he's basically doing the resurrection of Lazarus, um, which I think is really significant as we continually see Lenny trying to imitate Christ. And this might be the moment. I'm wondering if this is the specific moment that Sister Mary was referencing last episode of like, you have performed miracles. It is. It is. Oh, it is. Okay. I think kind of canonically in the show. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure. I thought it was for sure that because I didn't think she put put two and two together about Esther, which was what I initially had thought. And then I saw this episode and I was like, oh, Sister Mary would know about this one. I mean, this is the, not the villain origin story, but the Jesus origin story yes. of Lenny. Right? I think this because is it, because he even does the Jesus exa- Exactly. Like, and is like, listen here, God, let's go. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's, Lord, we must talk about Billy's mother, right? Yeah. Which is the similar sort of phrase he's used when talking about Esther, when right. talking about Sister Antonia, when yep. praying generally. Yep. Right? So there's that. There's the Jesus pose. Yep. We also, I think, get the origin of the light that Lenny is often bathed in slash mm-hmm. brings with him. Yes. Right? Happens after, uh, like, Billy's mother has been has been healed. Mm-hmm. Then there's also, like, Lenny's nonchalance about having being about to and then having just performed a miracle. Right? Like, he walks in reluctantly. And I think we can read that as he doesn't know he has, like miracle powers via God mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and was like kind of scared I think to go in like obviously there's some other issues that are happening there right but goes in and then like can't take his eyes off of Billy's sick mother mm-hmm. right even like when he's hugging Billy mm-hmm. um, who is his friend is Mary is like this is your friend you need to support him um, and like when he hugs him but like is staring at his at his mother right 
does the Jesus prayer and then like just gets up and walks away. Yeah. Like he walks out, walks out the front door, everybody else, right? Billy's dad, uh, Billy, sister Mary and Andrew are all just like standing there fucking awestruck quite literally, Mm -hmm. um, bathed in this light that like Lenny's communing with God has brought in. Um, and Lenny just walks away. Yeah. Right. And there's a certain discomfort or nonchalance that he has often like felt or experienced or like responded to when Sister Mary or others like raise the fact that he's performed miracles Mm -hmm. throughout um, in other episodes. And like we see the origin of that as well. Right. Then the other thing I want to say about like how this is so important is not only is it like picking up on all these times when Sister Mary has alluded to it, Spencer clearly has known about this. Mm-hmm. And there's the parallel again, this I think gets into your sacraments life cycle um, read of this episode mm-hmm. that like the previous episode ends with him doing the prayer in that pose mm-hmm. where they cut, drop out his audio, mm-hmm. right? And we don't hear a word after, like, let's, you know, we, we need to talk about uh, Billy's mother. Mm-hmm. Or, Lord, we must talk about Billy's mother. Right? We must, again, is a you must from the fateful episode. Right. So there's the same pose in the same, like, oral and visual style um, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. striking down Sister Antonia from last right. episode. Just in a house this time and not in a truck stop. Yeah, in the house, <laughs> not in a truck stop. <laughs> truck stop yeah do we think that that truck stop will become a holy site when lenny eventually dies and is canonized (laughs) it should the holy truck stop of saint lenny (laughs) yeah what else about either the miracle or like spencer's insistence on lenny telling the story one more time right what else around this do you think is notable well for one with we're seeing lenny also kind of give spencer his last rites which is the final sacrament you can um do is that you are dying and you are blessed and then you can move along um so i think that because at this point we've seen since episode one um Spencer really getting frustrated with his relationship with God. I mean, we see him be saved from a suicide attempt by a bunch of nuns yeah. in episode one. Um, lots of doubt. And he needs that from Lenny, who is like his last hope that there is this is all real right. and not a sham. Because he was talking about that last episode also. Mm-hmm. Indeed. The second calling, like, how do you find your faith after mm-hmm. like you've, you know, after you've you found it once, you lose it. Then how do you find it one more time? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that's the certainty he needs from Lenny, like one of the most uncertain about God characters in this show. Yeah. So like there's just that irony that that's what the role that Spencer puts Lenny into. And Lenny doesn't particularly hesitate in doing this for Spencer. Like something about their bond overcomes whatever like frustration and loss and disconnection he's feeling with Spencer and overcomes his reluctance to like acknowledge the story to some extent. Yeah. Um, but I think also in some ways that's reassuring Lenny's doubt in yeah, God too. Yeah, of course. It's a touch. This is a touching episode, I think, with Lenny, and it made me like him a lot more. Yeah. Um, again, I fully believe he's doing some growth in this episode for sure. We're seeing some growth. Yeah. Also, in this scene, we have Sister Mary just like in the corner pane of the window. Like, the lighting and the mm. filming of this episode is just in- absolutely magical. It is really good. Like. It's eerie, it's touching, it's, like, reminiscent of paintings, either that, like, are famous in the world or, like, that are in the title sequence, right? So you have, like, Sister Mary just in the corner window. It's also calling back to the fact that we earlier had seen Billy's mother 
only from Lenny and Andrew looking outside the house from mm-hmm. the window. Yeah. So we have uh, Sister Mary. We also have like Loyello, Caltanissetta, and the Spanish priest whose name I'm forgetting. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also around and like hovering around. Purely dark, like it's nighttime and they're outside, so they're mm-hmm. outside, but like perfectly lit. I mean, A, because it's a TV show and they want us to see them, but yeah. also like I think we have some of the, how is how does Lenny like draw the light of God, yeah. quite literally. Yeah. Then we have all of them walking back from, um, from Spencer's apartment after he dies, mm-hmm. where like they're just silent, they're crying, they're awestruck. Like, I cried when Spencer died, um... Now, that hasn't happened every time I've watched this show, mm-hmm. um, but it happened when I watched it last night. Mm. I did not cry. I famously, though, do not really cry yeah. in movies or TV. I've been crying a lot in movies and TVs. <laughs> well, that is, I guess, your sad boy, sad boy uh, summer. Sad boy summer. <laughs> sad boy summer. True. <laughs> versus Regan, who is in her Aphrodite era. Summer. <laughs> My recommendation um, that can be vouched for by um, by producer Amy actually is uh, so is to go see Pat. If you want to cry, like go watch past lives, which is like a beautiful film. Um, and B, like I was just bawling and I was, there was five of us there and I was not the only one although I was bawling okay. the hardest. <laughs> Got it. Um, not really feeling strongly like crying this summer. We'll see. Um, haven't cried at all this summer actually, cause it's been a good summer for me. I've cried lots of this summer. <laughs> That's okay. I love that for you. Yeah. I'm actually okay with it. You know, um, I did a lot of crying in the spring. Fair. I did. We t- there were several. There were several incidents of crying for me. That's true. That's so, true. We all have our seasons of crying. It happens. Yeah. But yeah, I think a very beautifully shot episode. I think also a, Lenny telling the story to Spencer, kind of interesting mirror to all of the conversations that Gutierrez is having with um, Rose. Really, I think a very beautiful episode for yeah. sure. And the I think the moment that like it hit me the most was. Lenny finishes telling this story, right? And then Spencer dies, right? Spencer has this, like, final moment of, Mm -hmm. like, back and forth with Lenny. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he dies, right? And he says, and, like, this is, you know, a little bit, like, strange, but, like, your mother is still alive and you'll find her, right? Lenny starts to cry. Mm -hmm. Spencer kind of, like, sits back and says, and now it's time to die in, like, the... It's the theater in the 16th, 17th century England. (laughs) Um, Now it's time to die uh, mode. Takes his last breath and the last breath and Lenny sobbing are like basically in sync Mm -hmm. in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then Lenny starts crying harder. Yeah. And we see sister Mary hearing that and we see Boyello hearing that. And like that moment where there's actually some human connection between all three of those characters Mm -hmm. and also Captain Aceta and the other priest as well. Like I think is the, is like the most poignant moment in there Mm -hmm. through all the camera work that's happening being just absolutely stunning. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree. We're still not done. We've got Lenny's love letters. Yes. Right? So Curl's grand scheme is like, ha I have these love letters, right. these letters that Lenny wrote, and we can show that he's lustful and a sinner and whatever, whatever. Um, and it turns out that Lenny never actually sent them. Right. And I think we're meant to interpret it as Lenny planted the letters to trick Curtwell. I think so. Yeah. Or to or to just be that much unscathed by whoever. Yeah. Um, and so Kurtwell like connects with this journalist uh, for the New Yorker or, right. or whatever, um, and gets told that like 
you've got nothing here. Lenny never sent these. Cartwell, and this is, I think, like a pride is a sin sort of situation, didn't read them all. Right. He just said he read enough. <laughs> right. He read enough. He read the salacious bits. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Like, just like a man. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Um, so true. Instead, what happens is that Lenny's letters are published as the Pope's love letters, right? Yes. As we see the right. journalists have right, the and they're presented, and they're and, and they're. It's very simplistic. It's not. A, it's like yeah. a, you know, it's a regular nineteen-year-old's view of love, but writing teacher approved, very beautifully written. Look, I cried again with the voiceover um, over this woman, like who's you know now an adult and like has kids in this house mm-hmm. and um, like reads these and like has this moment of connection. Another beautifully like blocked scene where yes. you get to see her moving through her house. I thought, yeah, a nice one take. Yeah. Um, and then to see her juggling the oranges. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just in showing how Lenny has affected her life. Like again, I think positively it seems. Yes. And that's the thing with like this episode has made Lenny grow on me so much because I think he's showing growth. He's showing vulnerability and kindness in a way that and we see kind of all of the evolution of how like he is someone who I think is an idealist in some ways who has been extremely burned by the world and by his life experiences. But I think this show so far as of episode nine for me is a lot about how you learn to accept love from those around you. Mm. Uh, which is a hard thing to learn. Lenny's yes. 47, right? Um, you know, at 30 and 36, I think you and I are still learning this. Uh, I'm very much trying to learn that, yes. Me too. Um, so I think it's a lot like he, you know, initially thinks what he really wants is the love of his parents. I think this episode drives home to him that re- he really grew the most from is his love that he received from Spencer. And that's why he's so torn up about it. And then, you know, capitalizing on losing his best friend who loved him very much with yeah. Andrew. Now all he's got left to keep him floating to that person is Sister Mary. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful way of also connecting the opening scene and the and the last scene mm. um, that you just gave us. And yeah, I mean, I don't have... In some ways, like, I was, I've always been very surprised by my reaction to this episode emotionally mm. um, each time I've watched it. And that, like, there are different points in this episode where I think I've cried every time I've watched this episode. On a plot level, there's a lot to this episode that's actually, like, quite simplistic and basic and, like, tropic in yes. the way that we've identified. Right. Um, the emotions are... Like, either melodramatic, right, i.e. the, like, the miracle that's performed, or kind of, like, saccharine in, like, a hashtag basic way, like, with some of, like, the simplicity of Lenny's, like, love letters, Mm. Um, and yet something about the combination of those views, which I would, like, to fully admit, like, often scoff at in, like, other pieces of, like, Mm. film or TV, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, I think we've gotten into some of these throughout the episode, like... I do find it incredibly, incredibly emotionally touching and well, powerful. Well, and, and here's the thing is that when you also are given patterns like this, this is like English 101, right? You're given, you give human beings like patterns, yeah. human beings like knowing what's happening. And when you're given like kind of you're given a structure, like I always think of it as like when you're given when you put up a trellis to plant flowers on Mm -hmm. you don't know exactly what's going to happen with the flowers but it will bloom and be beautiful right and i think that's kind of what's going on here is that we're seeing a a very structured episode that has a lot that is familiar to us and that lets us read into things in a way that turns things on its head i was not expecting to see a priest all fan kits almost fan kits 
His landlady. Right, but it was a beautiful moment. Yes. Right? I think when you get, just because it's like tropic or there's things that are going on here is that it's putting a little twist on a lot of different things yeah. that lets you read into like a lot of vulnerable human moments. Yeah. Right? I think that's an excellent way to frame it in part because I think for me, like myself, the question is, I so like stubbornly, obnoxiously, and pretentiously want to resist the patterns and the tropes and the narratives. Right. And yet like this TV show in general, to be quite honest, in this episode in particular, like breaks through my pretentious uh, stubbornness mm. to really like get me. Yeah. And I appreciate that deeply. Like that's what I want to happen when mm. I, I want to have like an emotional experience when I'm watching something mm-hmm. um, and something that like is striving and so in particular something that's striving for that in a way that, like, has some kind of, like, weird or transcendent right. elements, as this show certainly does. Right. No, I think, I mean, I think that is also why, like, Game of Thrones is so popular, is that it runs around with a lot of sword and sandal stereotypes and structures, but actually is growing something entirely different. I think to some extent, yes. Although so, Game of Thrones, but the show, the, we're not talking about the show. We're talking about the books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The books, yeah. The books, I the, the books have made me cry. The show has not made me no, cry. No, the show would never. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think this is ultimately though a show we're seeing about how you accept the love that is actually around you. I love that. And I'll, I'll, and the only thing that I'll add then is one of the things that to maybe be a bit too neat about what this episode is doing it shows that if you take some of these patterns and tropes and run them through something that is like incredibly ambitious visually mm-hmm. and the way it wants to challenge the viewer and like the way it's willing to fuck with characters and expectations of characters that's just willing to go and do weird things and try to be transcendent right if you pair the we're trying to do transcendent stuff in visual storytelling mm. And we also have some sort of, like, mastery of conventional tropes. Like, that's a really potent combination. Yeah. I think, like, this episode is just the most beautiful example of that. Agreed. All right. Yeah. We still have segments. Should we do the segments? I think we do. <laughs> I, I feel like we could end there, but we have a lot to... We have, not a lot. We're going to try to get through this a little more quickly, because Regan does have a heart out um, coming up. So, Regan, what do you have in the rectory? This is an important, pivotal rectory moment as so, we head into the finale. So, as the episode ends, we see Lenny um, look eye-to-eye with, like, a portrayal of uh, a personification of death. Well, it's the end of the cold open, right? Yes. Yeah. And so I felt that that's foreshadowing. Not of Spencer. Not of Spencer. Interesting. I felt like I knew Spencer was going to die this episode, but okay. perhaps a hint of Spencer. I think it's also foreshadowing to next episode. Someone else is going to die. Are you going to attach that prediction to a specific character? I'm not sure. I really hope it doesn't Gutierrez. Okay. Um, that's what I'm going to say. Um, as far as other predictions, I'm really not sure because this episode turned a lot of things on its <laughs> on its head for me. Yeah. So I don't know if I have any um, hard, um, self-prompted um, predictions for otherwise. Then I'll, I'll, I can ask you some questions. Okay. Do you think Lenny will be Pope at the end of episode 10? Mm, no. Okay. What do you think Sister Mary is, has, is doing in episode 10? She's going to do a lot of roller skating. Okay. I don't know. So she's taking over Esther's role as who's Maybe. in charge of the roller I'm, skating I'm not. Children. I'm not sure, but something tells me she's going to be I mean, active know, in the final episode. We know she's a hooper. Like, she yes. can sing baskets, so probably she can roller skate. Yeah. I feel like she's going to be very active in the next episode. Okay. And then what um, happens to, with what is Foyella doing in the next episode? 
I don't know, because I no longer think Gerald Lamo's days are numbered. Okay. Like, I don't, I'm not sure. Okay. So I'm not sure about what Voyello's going to be doing. Maybe Voyello will confess to his sins in a genuine way. Oh, that would be interesting. That's, okay. That's where I'm going to say. All right. I like that. Any other predictions in the rectory? <sighs> I'm not sure. Okay. We've got a little bit of time left. When okay. he comes back, we yeah. can do some bonus rectory. Um, let's head into gloss. You have a whole grand theory of this episode. Yeah. That, like, I, <laughs> I'm very impressively, I'm, I'm impressed that you have held back from it so far. Because I would have been like, here's the thing I noticed. Here's right. the reference I well, saw much I, earlier. I would have done that an hour ago. And here we are, an hour and ten minutes in. <laughs> I've held You've on restrained, to it. So let's hear it. Um, it's, I'm really, you know, holding on to my Catholic practices <laughs> of, of restraint and self-flagellation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have um, my linen pants are actually lined with hair. <laughs> um, so for me, I don't I don't think this was a purposeful choice by Paolo Sorrentino. Um, but I was reading a lot of these references. There are so many things about this episode that reminds me of the movie What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Which I have not seen. Right. One, actually, the movie I love um, by one of my favorite other favorite directors, which is Lassie Hallstrom. Which is like a very touching story about um, small town life in the 80s and how capitalism ruins things. Um, as skilled with that. Yeah. Um, maybe you and I should watch it together sometime. I don't know. You probably won't like it as much as I will, but it's, I think, good and interesting. A movie also about disability in variety of forms. So the basic plot of What's Eating Gilbert Grape is that Gilbert Grape is... Um, a grocery store clerk. Um, he's having an affair with Betty, played by Mary Steenbergen, who I think is one of the most beautiful women on the planet. <sighs> Be still my heart. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Um, Gilbert Grape is played by a young Johnny Depp. Um, Gilbert, um, in addition to working a full-time job, he's implied to be maybe 19 or 20 years old. Um, he has two best friends, played by um, Crispin Glover and John C. Riley, early in their careers. Nice, there's a Love lot. That. Right, there's a lot of famous people in this cast. movie. Yeah, he's a caretaker for his mother, who is morbidly obese, has not left the house in seven years, and he. Um, so his mother Bonnie, and then um, his younger brother um, is Arnie, who um, is played by a young Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. And Arnie is um, implied to be there's no real diagnosis given to him, but he's definitely intellectually disabled in some way. So two forms of disability in the same movie. So I thought Freddie as the store clerk, who's very flirtatious. Gilbert Grape is not a flirtatious character, okay. but it was maybe seemed to me to be like a, a twist on Gilbert. Gilbert Grape, um, who is having an active affair with a woman in town. Um, Rose clearly is Gilbert's mom. Uh -huh. um, Gilbert's mom has not left the house in seven years until she does finally leave the house when Arnie gets arrested mistakenly um, and becomes a laughing stock in the town. So is, she's very fearful and has developed agoraphobia in the past few years. Um, Bernardo is doing the small town, big city vibes because at the end of the, of what's eating Gilbert grape, the family. So there's, um, Gilbert is, um, the second oldest of a, of a rather large family. Mm -hmm. He is, um, in addition to his younger brother, um, uh, or no, he's the third oldest. Um, so in addition to his younger brother, Arnie, he has a younger sister, uh, two older sisters and an older brother. The older brother has already left their small town of Andorra, Iowa. So at the end, they have to move to Des Moines. Okay. The bustling tropics <laughs> of Des Moines, Iowa. JK, I love Des Moines. I think Des Moines I know people a fun who town. really love Des Moines. So Des Moines is a lovely town. Yeah. 
Um, so he's doing the sort of small town, big city thing that Gilbert has to go through. Um, and then I also thought that David is a kind of an interesting point because he wears a yellow wig and Leonardo DiCaprio, famous blonde, um, you know, who does and. David does some unusual things. He's clearly not well. Arnie is infamous for climbing things he should not okay. and does things that are not typical of, of um, what you should do as a human. So kind of an interesting parallel between the two of them. Um, so, yes, I saw a lot of things that I was just like, there's just so much of what's going to kill my grapes in this episode. I love this reading for you. Thank you. Um, we did some like 30 second Googling and just of like what's eating Gilbert great Paolo Sorrentino to see if he's ever commented on it. Nothing we could find on like no. a page or two of Google results. And it's um, such an American movie that I yeah. feel like Paolo Sorrentino probably is not maybe has heard of it, but probably has never watched it. I just love that read and I appreciate it very much that you brought it to not quite great books. Oh, thank you. You could have brought it to any podcast and you brought it here. Well, the episode reminded me so much of the movie that it has to be that way. All right. So there's some choices that are made in this right. episode that are worth discussing. There's no title sequence, right? right. We, it's not the only time the uh, show has done that um, or has messed with it. But, like, it's just the cold open, mm -hmm. cut to an establishing shot of New York City. Just the title, The Young Pope, comes up, and we go to Gutierrez. Yep. Why do you think, like... Sorrentino and team chose that mm. and like what's the effect of it on our experience well the title episode? sequence is about Lenny and this episode isn't really about yeah. Lenny it's about Gutierrez mm -hmm. um, so that would be I think I think also like because we've waited so long to hear about the Kurtwell case that the show is also maybe choosing to not have us pace it out and wait for it yeah they're letting us get to the good bits yeah I think there's a certain like emotional tonality that that establishes as we go straight from the argument between Lenny and Spencer into Gutierrez's narrative. Um, like not interrupting that emotional flow is I think a useful choice. Mm. And like, you know, if we wanted to be, if I wanted to be much, but I don't want to have to include you in this, but like there's a way in which is Lenny's walking around the Sistine Chapel in the opening. Like, he's kind of doing the title sequence. Like, here's yeah, some famous true. art. Oh, and Lenny's yeah, yeah, walking yeah. around. So I think we can read it that way, too. I think that, yeah, I think yeah. that, I like that read. Just it's no meteor read. coming. Yeah. Except the uh, proverbial meteor of death that takes Spencer. Yes. All right. I love that. <laughs> Lots of, um, the, the musical choices are really right. strange in this episode. But I kind of love it. Me too. What, what, um, what was, like, the musical well, cue that you loved the most? I'm really loving their use of um, Never Be Like You by Flume. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a really interesting choice. Of, I mean, also of modernizing Gutierrez's experience. It uses pop music really well, I think, this episode. Uh, to show just the dissonance between the two places Gutierrez has ever been, really. Um, aside from maybe his growing up in Spain. Um, <laughs> I think dissonance is the key word. Like, yeah. that's what they're doing in some ways throughout the episode with yeah. the musical choices, right? We have, I think, f dissonance of us knowing what little we know about Kurtwell mm -hmm. and the, mm -hmm. like, dramatic, um, melodramatic like strings mm -hmm. that play over him recounting this childhood of being on the run and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like there's a certain dissonance, not necessarily of like theme and music, but of the theme and the music dissonant with what we know of Kurtwell is like, he's yeah. the bad guy, yeah. right? He's getting like a emotional traumatic story retelling narrative treatment yeah, 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 by yeah. the music. It's mm -hmm. so like, there's that, there's this use um, of never be like you, which then comes back at the end of the episode yep. in a really wonderful way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and the, there's a couple times where we get, 
get like jangly pop music and this is something that they've done throughout and like yeah. they love the like ukulele i think it is a yeah. couple of times or in, in earlier episodes <laughs> yeah. like upbeat ukulele as uh-huh. lenny broods um right, right, which right. is always yeah. enjoyable so i i just i do love the musical choices here much better than um a halo cover yeah better use of it also better use of pop music than, than that yeah yeah i was not thrilled with that all right. Any other choices you wanna you wanna highlight or identify? Um, I love all the lighting choices. Yeah. Um, I think it's really interesting to see how shows. I mean, I've only been to New York City one time, and that was when I was probably thirteen. Unlike the traditional Midwest yeah. New York DC trip. Famously, I lived there for six years. Yes, and John's <laughs> lived there for a long time. But I think whatever view you see of New York and the choices that people choose to show the Big Apple in is very interesting. Like my view now as an adult of New York City, I think is quite nuanced, mostly because I work with students who are by and large from the Bronx. When I think of other shows that have infamously portrayed a visit to New York, I think of Glee, which shows it in a very like romantic way. Mm. Um, and the episode where they go to New York, where it's kind of showing all the best parts of it, like fancy restaurants, the beautiful shots of New York City um, and Central Park and... Um, very nostalgic in a way that is um, and very polished versus this shows it as like kind of gritty um, and dark and almost damp. Um, Mm -hmm. Like it seems to be happening maybe in late fall or early winter or as winter is turning into spring. Well, we do get the papal white winter jacket on Lenny. So I think yeah, you're correct. Okay, so maybe yeah. winter-ish. Of, yeah. Um, well, I think winter in Italy is very different That's true. than winter yeah. in the winter. city. Yeah. Um, so it's always oh interesting to me we'll to see, to like, <laughs> or like other shows I think of that are set in New York, like, um, for example, um, Friends, like, or um, Seinfeld, right? Those Sex are, in the City. Sex yeah. in the City. Like, those are very different portraits of what life in New York City is like, or the works of one of the inspirations of this show, Spike Lee, um, shows it in a ways, you know, Spike Lee New York is very colorful, creative place versus like Sex in the City is like all the glamour. Law and Order SVU shows it as like dark and seedy in some yeah. ways. We don't see like these glowing shots of Forest Hills, Queens. Um, so I don't know. I, I do think just like the choice to have Kurtwell be based in Queens and for most of the episode to have taken most of the episodes in New York to presumably be taking place in Queens is well, indeed a great it would, choice. It would have to be because it's the name that implies the most power. <laughs> yeah, but like, I think there's a certain like New York geography and politics mm. and the religious politics of New York City that make it appropriate to be in Queens. Tell me more and, about that. I mean, just, I mean, nothing, in, I mean, just to say that like, We've remarked on this with regards to Lenny's accent, that it's like an outer boroughs, quote unquote, accent, mm, okay. right? And so like, it wouldn't make sense to have. With the with the power that Kurtwell is exercising, it makes sense that that's power that's exercised over one of the outer boroughs rather than power that is exercised primarily in Manhattan. I'm sure he exercises power in Manhattan as well. Right, okay. And I think it's by setting it in Queens that that's the show access some of what you were just talking about in terms of this episode's depiction of Queens. Like okay. if you set it in most of, in many parts of Manhattan, like then you were redoing some other shows on stuff, which are predominantly set in Manhattan right. as opposed to, uh, having this be elsewhere. So okay. I thought that was a, that was a good choice. Yeah. Cool. Are there things in glass you want to talk about? I'm mean, just one more camera choice okay. is that like the way that 
they filmed Lenny's miracle with Billy's mom. Mm. The camera angles are very interesting. They're yeah, like, yeah. the camera is often situated. You would think the camera would be kind of somewhat above looking down at Billy's right, mom. But and it, and at times it is, but it's a lot of at her level, mm. which is also the level where Lenny is when he is on his knees praying. Mm. So it's like they had a mid elevation camera shot when I think shows more often would have gone exclusively overhead or angled down or even shooting Lenny like from behind or below or in front and below. Mm. So it's like the oblique mid angle of the camera I thought was effective. Which is interesting because it humanizes this whole scene so much. It makes it seem very not holy in some ways. Mm, yeah. I like that. Right. Yeah. It's it's like he's really like working hard and trying. Lord, we must talk about Billy's yeah. mother. Like right. he's the working class king. <laughs> anyway. So we got some sports ball happening right. in yes. here. Um, yeah, some tennis. tennis. I maintain that Freddie would be better at tennis if Kurtwell wasn't an abusive fuck. Okay. Who was creepy. Okay. So I think you're more skeptical um, of his tennis skills. I'm more skeptical of tennis skills. I don't know. I also, tennis is also my least favorite sport. Okay. Um, of the sports balls, I feel, um, you know, we discussed last, last episode, the sexiest of I think sports. Oh, did it? Never mind. <laughs> Damn it. But when I think of holy sports, figure skating does come up. What? Because it's very, it's so graceful. It's a lot of reverence. Um, in pairs, you know, it's, we have to be very careful of other people's bodies. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I was going to ask you kind of what you thought. The centrality of the figure skater, who's mm. like, what goes good, yeah. very good, um, but is essentially performing just for Gutierrez and David, right. which... David somewhat comments on explicitly about like we were watching the figure skating, yeah. like what you thought that that represented for the show or for the characters. Mm. I think like beauty, reverence, the performance, the right. like. Well, Gutierrez also goes skating himself with yes, David. He does. Um, I think figure skating. Well, okay. So I, my uh, one other thought about it is that if we're reading into it, it's kind of winterish in New York. You go ice skating at Rockefeller Plaza. Clearly, Gutierrez cannot afford to go there, or maybe didn't get a reservation. Um, he does sharpen his own skates, showing that he is a hard worker. Yeah. Um, I would have taken them to a professional, but that was just me. I also thought that I saw on his skates that he had little crosses on the bottom. That'd be awesome. I mean, that'd be adorable. Right, the, papal, the papal figure skates. <laughs> um, but maybe that was a mis, uh, misread by my eye. Yeah. So it's a sport. I think I like it shows a lot of innocence, though. Like... There's something about going skating that I think in the, at least in the American psyche is like, um, you know, it's a very, um, good, like first date for teenagers or college students. Like it's something that is, um, not like it, it's sexualized and only for professionals. I feel like, yeah, like if regular people are going ice skating, it's like all very innocent. Um, so I think it's kind of an interesting dynamic that we see like the figure skater who isn't being provocative, but it is like showing the skill and delicacy of some of handling the situation also for Gutierrez. Yeah. Um, you know, just as she is doing a very careful toe picking and breaking on the ice, like he's very carefully kind of skating through his conversation Oof. to get... I love it. To get David to confess things. Amazing. And to gain his trust. There's no way I could add anything else to that. <laughs> we should point out that as we've sung Lenny's praises and, you know, highlighted his character and right. personal growth, he's also, like, using the papal helicopter to stalk Esther. Yeah. And we should identify that that's also happening. That is bad. That I was... never said Lenny was perfect. I oh, said no, he was growing. We both, I love Lenny and deeply feel for him. And he's extremely not perfect. 
So yeah, that was strange. <laughs> Not his best move. But uh, very keeping in character. Yes, the papal yeah. stocking and his yeah. casual cashmere hoodie and khaki pants. I, uh, yes. That was a good looked look. Looked great. Looked great. He's, he also looked good. He had his papal athleisure on when he had the papal Skype call with Gutierrez. Yes, yep. Speaking of papal stuff, we are in potpourri. I've got one major thing. Okay, I have another thing. So we have, as um, we have everyone walking out of Spencer's uh, house in the Vatican, the wind kicks up. Mm-hmm. And it kicks up very strongly. Voyella's hat is blowing off. Lenny's mm-hmm. like papal situation is a little bit kicked back, and he has almost this like calyx sticking out at the front. That's very funny. <laughs> yeah. um, but they're all made. They're all deeply touched by the wind, and so like you know, I knew that the Holy Spirit and the wind were often associated with one another, but I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. So I did some half-assed googling. Would you like to hear why? I would love to. So the primary reference is uh, the Book of John, chapter three, verse eight, and not quite great books is a King James podcast. I don't right, know if yes. you knew that. Um, I did know so that. So here's the King James Version of that verse. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Mm. Right? And so I, and just based on like a cooking a couple Google sites around, it seems like the wind analogy and this line in new international form is often used as a way to teach children in Catholic uh, schools or Sunday school or whatever, um, but also other Christian religions as well about the Holy Spirit. Okay. I was going to say, because my initial reaction was that um, we know in Genesis, God breathes the breath of life into Adam mm-hmm. also, which yeah. is one of those things, which is implied to be the Holy Spirit, and then yeah. they lose it when they eat the the danger apple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my private headcanon, though, is that oh. it's not a danger apple, it's a danger pomegranate. <laughs> That would make a lot. That would yeah. That would make a lot of it sense makes in a lot sense. of ways. It makes more sense, including like cobbling together pieces of other mythologies. Like we have pomegranates and um, such. My potpourri is again um, the um, f- running through of a lot of sacraments, yeah. also, which I think is really interesting. Um, I went to college with someone who did an honors project um, in a writing, cl- a creative writing class, where she wrote a poem about every sacrament you can do as a Catholic, which I think is quite interesting. I do love that, and as you pointed out, like. That also becomes a structuring mechanism for this episode as yes. well, in addition to working thematically with a lot of the questions that are raised in this episode or the show as yeah. a whole. So I think that's an appropriate potpourri. Anything else you want to add into potpourri? Um, I do want to call out mm, the papal fashion. Like, I just yes. think we got to see so many Lenny outfits. I think we've shouted out each one at this point. Right. But, like, I'm, I'm into it. Yeah. I cannot do it. Juba can. Yeah. I think it's the rule. I think that's fair. All right. Well... Where in the world is John's confirmation yes, name? We've got it's two time. this week. Yes. Um, I've got a nominee, and then the more important nominee comes from Regan. <laughs> oh, shush. Uh, so we have shouted out by Spencer uh, St. Alphonsus. This is St. Alphonsus Liguori. I'm going to throw out there in Spencer's honor, RIP, pour one out mm-hmm. um, as one of the possible uh, answers to mm. where in the world is John's confirmation name. So St. Alphonsus, Italian uh, in the 18th century, it would appear. Um, canonized in the 19th century. He is patron saint of arthritis, lawyers, confessors, moralists, and vocations. Um, But also he's the co-patron of the city of Naples. Ah, interesting. Ah, A connection here. He's probably, that's probably Voyello's patron saint. That would make 
a billion percent. Yes. Um, I would say, I mean, the lawyers make sense. You kind of deal with the laws of a political science professor, True. but not really. Yeah. Moralists, sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you've been into hot, it's your hot confessor summer also. It is hot. It is our hot confessor summer. Excuse me. <laughs> um, no, this is my prettiest Slavic housewife at <laughs> the farmer's market. <laughs> Those are not mutually exclusive. I would, I would maintain. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> All right. So again, this is, I think, falls in the category of 13 year old John was a no, didn't know no. who this fellow was. Okay. But I'm open to the possibility now. As adult John. Yeah. Okay. All right. Who's your better nominee? Um, I don't know if it's better, but mine um, was the infamous St. Nicholas. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I don't like know. Down the chimney, St. Nicholas? This, yes. This is, oh, this is the person that we, he's based off of. Um, and so he is the patron saint of children. Um, it seems thematically appropriate for this episode, which is yes. a lot about saving children. Um, but also Coopers. Do you feel um, strongly about making barrels, John? I don't. No? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, travelers, sailors, fishermen, merchants, broadcasters. But the falsely accused. That's an interesting one. Which I think is for you um, a good call. Repentant thieves. Same. Brewers, pharmacists, archers, pawnbrokers, unmarried people. You are infamously unmarried. Infamously interesting. Infamously unmarried. (laughs) Um, I say as. I was talking to my mother the other night where she did deliberately ask this time, Ah. are you and John a thing? Okay. (laughs) And I said, no. Yeah. Um, And she said, well, why not? (laughs) Susan. Susan. Um, To which I... (laughs) I do appreciate her devotion to this cause. Right, she's she's definitely on the um, the John on SS, <laughs> the good ship SS John Regan. Um, but also um, prostitutes who are pro sex and pro sex worker. True. Um, so I think that would be kind of an interesting choice for yeah, you. I I yeah I wouldn't have been like Christmas crazy as right. a thirteen year old. So I, yeah. I don't think you're a Christmas crazy person or or now. But you, I do associate you with winter. That's correct. That's appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Sadness, darkness, you know, it's a great, I was, great crying I, hours. Um, I, I do prefer cold to warm weather. I was going for you do prefer cold to warm weather and yeah. then much of our friendship blossomed through a winter. That's very true. We infamously, our first friend date was canceled because of a snowstorm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, for um, sure. I also think of you as like the per- the growth that can happen through a winter. I love that. Thank you. That's very touching. I appreciate that. We have a beautiful friendship. We do. Um, we just got to tell, that's what we got to tell Susan. Like, you can have a beautiful friendship. Right. Yeah. You can have a beautiful friendship. Because, yeah. because we would be the world's worst couple. I think that's probably and that's what right. I And that's what I told her. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, greatest of friends and would not work as a couple. Would not. Appropriate. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. I love this. We get to do some. We get to do some self discovery and growth of our own. Right. I hope um, you talk with Tanya about this. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> Dad, it's my little uh, notes app. Uh, note about things to talk about her with. Right. Who's our hot priest this week? Um, so I do give Lenny a good rating. He has great fits this this episode. Yeah. Right. So he's maintaining at a gram. However, I'm going to give Gutierrez a little bit of a rating. Ooh, I would love this. Right, we do get him in his um in his uh, Y fronts. Um, I was unopposed. I was like Javier. I forget his last name. Kamara. Uh, Javier Kamara is a good looking man. Hundred percent. Right, and so I'm gonna give him um a Dan from Closer. So kind of middle of the road, but we like know, a high middle. But we know Dan from Closer is secretly my favorite Jude Law. So. 
Um, but yes, so I'm going to give him a Dan from Closer, but also like some a little bit Jan Rog from Captain Marvel, okay. which I don't think you've ever seen. Great. But but it's <laughs> Jude, Jude Law as, as like hot alien mentor. Okay. Can I have Jubas Hot Alien Mentor in a non-Marvel property? That's fine. Okay. That would be my preference. Okay. I support the all of these Hot Priest ratings. So, yes. That's my Hot Priest rating. I love it. Are you planning a big finale for Hot Priest rating next I'm week? I'm not sure. I, I don't usually make the Hot Priest rating until I've finished the episode. That seems appropriate. So. Um, I'll be interested. Because we we've already hit the pinnacle we where have. he did get to Hot Priest he from did. Fleabag he last did. episode. Yeah. But I appreciate that, like, your uh, vision for hot priest trading was expansive enough. Because the plan, if I remember correctly, was that in the final episode, that would be the question is, has he met hot priest trading? But you responding to Juba's performance, a great script, a wonderful show, were, like, willing to adapt and be like, you know what? He made hot priest early. He did. So that's great. Um, so we'll see. We'll, we'll, I'll have to put through some more thoughts for the final Hot Priest rating. Okay. It'll be the sad uh, sunset on the uh, world's favorite podcast segment. It's true. Time for the cave? Yes. Let's go into the cave. Aquinas, our boy, coming with us as always. We're in the Summa. Surprise, surprise. 2A, 2AE60. Add two. It is one thing to judge of things and another to judge of men. When we judge of things, the good or evil of the thing of which we are judging is not at issue, since it will suffer no harm, no matter what kind of judgment we reach about it. All that is at issue is the good of the man who judges. If he judges truly, and if his evil is he judges, if he judges falsely, since the true is the good of the intellect and the false is evil, end quote, as it said in Ethics, book six, some Aristotle. This is why everyone should strive to ensure that his judgment is consistent with the true nature of things. My God, I'm so good at picking spots. Reen's just pointing, not I, looking. Right. Is just John pointing. flips, I point. Yeah, and I'm not like I was very tempted to go to the index and like find a specific page, but I withheld from that temptation and just right. opened to a rando page. Wow, the, very appropriate for this episode. Yeah, I mean, granted, this episode's a little bit, a lot more about the judging of people than yes. of things, but this notion that, like, in the act of judging, you learn not only about the thing that is being judged, says Aquinas, but also the mm-hmm. person doing the judging, yeah. really good and evil, right. it's extremely well-suited for our discussion of Gutierrez in this yes. episode. Who is, who is making a lot of close judgments and a lot of decision making and trying to stay true I think to himself as, as you know who is a good person and likewise we also see other people evaluating and judging Gutierrez like in their different ways and to differing extents or levels for sure like we learn about Gutierrez mm. you know this is a little bit a little bit different than what Aquinas is saying but he raises the question like what who do we know and what do we know about what on the basis of judging right. through Rose through Peter through Freddie and through most of all David we do learn things about Gutierrez Right. About about like the morality of Gutierrez as a person. Yeah, I don't know if I have anything to say other than what you have just said, but okay. I'm very impressed with myself. Nine for nine. Yeah. Do you think you can make ten out of ten? At this point, I, I'm better. The trend wouldn't indicate that. I, we'll see. It's a lot of pressure on your final Aquinas. I know. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling confident. All right. I love that. We've got some uh, strangely <laughs> um, perfect. 
cave theory ship moment. So, Regan, why don't you start us off? Um, so, first of all, I'm going to assign some Brittany Cooper elo- eloquent rage specifically to Gutierrez. I think it would be good for him to read about, um, you know, the opposite existence that he has, but also talk about harnessing rage. He's clearly uncomfortable with a lot of feelings. And sometimes when we harness and we understand anger, we can be more comfortable with other feelings. Yeah, I love that suggestion. Totally independent of that, I had come up with the idea (laughs) of theory shipping some Dorothy Roberts to Lenny um, and giving Lenny, and like we might as well give it to Spencer too, although we each have a Spencer coming up here in a second. Yeah. Um, So that like, that's actually the perspective. Like I appreciate that. Spencer's got slightly more nuance in his discussion of abortion. Yes. But, like, you can't talk about abortion or reproduction in the United States context or in a colonial context without reading Dorothy Roberts, right? Mm-hmm. Killing the Black Body is obviously a foundational work right. for him to understand the, like, racialized and gendered politics of, and capital politics of uh, reproduction in the body in American history and American present. That's a great book to teach, um, mm-hmm. I found, in a Danielle is, I think, especially um, fond of teaching Killing the Black Body Mm -hmm. um, in courses. So clearly, if we're talking about student-teacher dynamics already versus for Lenny and Spencer, like, they should both be students of Dorothy Roberts and, like, we should fuck up their worldviews about abortion Mm -hmm, by mm -hmm. Dorothy Roberts' brilliance. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But we each have one more. Well, I have two more. If one perfect pairing... Right, you have two more. If one perfect pairing is we have Brittany Cooper and Dorothy Roberts, our next trio is also perfect. Why don't yes. you go next? Um, so next I'm going to assign some Nietzsche to Spencer. You know, just <laughs> becoming more comfortable with discomfort and death and ex- our existence. I think it's a good good thing for him to read as he prepares to, to die. I would be interested to know Spencer's thoughts on internal recurrence mm. um, in Nietzsche. Because, like, obviously he would basically reject the premise, but I think he would do it in an f- interesting and, like, generative way. Yeah. Um, and I also, he, and I think Spencer maybe has the intellect to like not have the simplistic shitty reading of Nietzsche that so often gets uh, bandied yes. about. Yeah. Um, so that it would, would be, be a non dude bro yes. reading of Nietzsche. Even though like Spencer's kind of Catholic dude bro to some extent. Uh, a little bit. A little bit. But I think he can. But he wouldn't be the existentialist dude bro. Yes. He would overcome um, yeah. in that and read about Nietzsche's and overcoming. Um, so again, totally independently decided I would like to assign some Deleuze to Spencer. <laughs> Deleuze on Nietzsche is like an incredible um, mm-hmm. piece of theory. So like yeah. there's that connection there. And I, I specifically am interested in like Deleuze, like difference in repetition Deleuze actually, mm-hmm. um, which is actually in some ways a foundational text, although Danielle doesn't know this, Danielle shouts um, for this podcast and like our jokes about both ending. So like, you know, the question, one of the, several questions in in difference and repetition for Deleuze, but one of them is about like a fundamentally different, like ontological, epistemological, linguistic notion. Um, and like thinking about ands rather than ors, um, is like an ontological premise. So anyway, there's this line that Spencer has about like, Lenny keeps stacking all these premises on top, on top Mm. of one another. And for Spencer, I think this is a correct read of Lenny. Like that's a reductionist tendency. Whereas like Deleuze and difference in repetition is asking us to think about the and, 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 and as like a creative, like ontogenetic process. Project. Mm. So that's my Deleuze that I'm giving to Spencer. Okay. And like, we're just, we have this great course for Spencer planned. <laughs> right. We really do. Um, and finally, I'm going to assign some Foucault to Freddie, yeah. um, specifically history of sexuality. Just, great. just cause 
that I think he needs it. Any particular volume? Like, I think... I I've think only read volume like, one. I think, like, two, three, and four are more appropriate for a friend. Okay. Actually. Yeah, I've only read volume one. Yeah. Um, uh, infamously. Um, for, for someone on this theory podcast, I've read very little. I would A, disagree, and B, you've done a wonderful job theory shipping. Well, thank you, because I'm just, I, I don't know, I'm going for, like, obscure theorists that, like, are only familiar to me. In some previous episodes, yes, this is, like, very, you know, mm. so yeah, this is very, our, our, our theory ship brains are our one in our okay. friendship in this, <laughs> in this moment. All right. Well, thank you for this episode, John. We did it. <laughs> Our longest episode yet. We'll see if we can break the record again in the we'll finale. See. All right. Thank you, John. And thank you to, of course, producer Amy and to Danielle. Uh, we've got next week the finale yep. of The Young Pope. How are you feeling about us um, having one more you episode? You know, it feels correct to me. Okay. I'm ready. ready to wrap the show up and okay. see what happens. All right. Thank you, <laughs> so. Regan. Thank you, listeners. Until next time, this has been Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.